Awesome. Well, good to be with you this morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Grateful to get to join you for worship together. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome. We're glad to have you, glad that you to join us. We'd love to get to know you, help you get plugged in. Like Becky was saying, or uh, not Becky. Oh, man, it's been a morning. Like Steph was saying, uh, we'd love to have you get involved in small groups. It's one of the best ways to get to know people. Uh, as well, uh, she was talking about membership. We'd love to, one of the, if you want to understand what River City is really all about, we don't try to hide that. So we're, uh, we're pretty on the face about what matters to us and what we're about here at River City. But uh, coming to the membership class or going through the online version, that's a great way to see what's important in River City, what does that really matter, and what does it look like to be on mission here and to be a part of the community here in a way that's all about making disciples and growing in the gospel and planting churches. And so we'd love to have you check that stuff out as a way to continue to grow and get connected and just love to get to know you some more. So um, looking forward as well to open God's word with you guys together. We're nearing the end of a series this morning that we've been in as we started the year that's all about identity. We, we all ask the questions about our, our identity and our purpose. Who are we? What are we supposed to be doing with our lives? Where do we get our sense of value and significance and worth from? And What we've seen is that while the the world around us tells us the way you answer those questions is by looking deep inside yourself and discovering those answers, what we see throughout Scripture is that the way the Bible tells us to answer those questions is by looking up at Jesus because he's the one who both shows us, he demonstrates to us who we were made to be, and it's through his life and his death that we're actually enabled and empowered to become the people that he's made us to be, the real us. And our series this this uh, begun this year is a little bit out of the norm in the sense that normally at River City we kind of just pick a book of the Bible and work our way through it verse by verse. After we finish this, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to start the book of Philippians and work our way verse by verse through that book, and so excited to do that. But Sometimes it's important and helpful for us to study various ideas or themes that, that, that are kind of come across the grain of Scripture and, and in the ways that you don't just necessarily find as you just study straight through it. And so that's what we're doing in our series this morning. And, and, the, and the reason why we're doing it now as opposed to any other time of the year, the series about identity, is because I think the reality is, is what I find is that right around the New Year is a time when lots of people are often trying to kind of rediscover or reinvent themselves. And In the midst of that, I just wanted us to spend some time together reminding ourselves not about how you make an identity for yourself, but about the one that God offers you freely in Christ. And just to realize it's way better than any identity you could manufacture or discover for yourself. And so uh, that's my heart and that it would be good news that allows you to rest in that. And we saw throughout our study so far in Genesis 1 and 2 how on the most foundational level, the identity we have in Christ is that God calls us, he makes us his image-bearing reference representatives, that with our lives and our actions and our attitudes, we reflect God's nature and character into the world, and that gives meaning and purpose to every area of our lives, not just the ones that seem important, but even the difficult and mundane parts of it. And, and we saw in John chapter 1 and 2, 1 John 1 and 2, how our identity in Christ is as completely forgiven image bearers, that instead of receiving the identity God gives us as his image bearing people, we've all rejected it. And it has caused us not only to fail to image God rightly, but to fail to honor his image in the lives of others. And and so what we see is that where we failed, Jesus did not. He bore God's image perfectly. He did it for us on our behalf. And it's his shed blood that's the means by which you and I are able to be completely forgiven. And what happens is, is that the reality of our identity as those who are forgiven through faith in Jesus means that we can be free from guilt and shame in the midst of life. 
We're actually empowered to live as the people God calls us to be. Then Galatians 3 and 4, we saw how we're not just renewed and forgiven, image-bearing employees of God, but we're his beloved adopted children. Through faith in Christ, we have this new status and standing. God's not our boss, but he's a good and loving father. He's brought us into his family, given us the same rights and privileges as Jesus himself. And Then the following week, we looked at John 15, and we saw how God takes it another step further, and he calls us not just his children, but his his friends. God in Christ, he reveals himself to us, and he commits himself to us as the best friend of all. And we saw how it's his friendship to us that actually not only transforms our relationship with him, but it actually enables us to be the kinds of friends to others that he has been to us. And last week we saw in 1 Corinthians 12 how living out those identity, the identity that Jesus gives us is not something we can do on our own. God's made us part of his body and that each of us need one another. And that reality as God calls us indispensable parts of his body, it roots out the lies that produce in us self-pity or self-sufficiency. And so instead of being concerned, most concerned about ourselves, we're actually freed up because of the identity Jesus gives us to be concerned primarily about God and about his glory. And hopefully that, that recap is just an encouragement to you about the identity we see in Christ. I don't know about you, my son Caleb, he answers every question you ask him with like a thumbs up, some sideways or thumbs down, you know, and I can imagine if Caleb was here this morning, he'd give me like the double thumbs up, like, yeah, I like it. Good. Let's do that again, right? You see, the reality is, is that we wrap up the next couple of weeks of our series is that we're actually going to come to a few aspects of the identity we have through Christ that, if we're honest, uh, we're a lot less eager to embrace. A couple of aspects of our identity that maybe we don't pump the fist for. Maybe some ones that we're like, ah, I don't know if we needed to talk about that one. We could probably just like skip that one. We're good so far with the ones we got, right? You see, this morning we're going to talk about our identity as servants and I think the reality is that most Christians agree that, that we should be servant-hearted, that that's good, right? Like Jesus was a servant, we should be servants, right? Uh, serving is something that's good to do. But being a servant, that's a, that's a different story. And absolutely zero of us want to be treated like a servant. You see, what I want to show you this morning as we study John 13 and this incredible example we see Jesus setting for us is that The only way you actually are able to go from dutifully choosing the life of a servant to actually embracing the identity and the attitudes of a servant is when you see that Jesus has done it for you. It's the only way you do it. See, when you understand the way that Jesus took on the identity of a servant for you, what will happen is you won't see the identity he gives you as a servant as a menial obligation But what happens, you're actually going to start to see it as a life-giving calling that actually fuels you with joy. So I can't wait to show you that this morning as we study God's word. And so that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into our passage together. Jesus, thanks for your word. Thanks for our time together in it. God, as we come to gathers this morning, we just, God, we just want to, again, remind ourselves of our need for you. God, thanks that you meet us in our need for you. Thanks that your word is good news for us in the midst of that. And we, God, we just humbly ask that you might cause us to see the good news of our identity as servants. God, it's not our default mode to receive that with joy or to embrace that, but we need you to shape it in us so that we actually might have the joy you know it leads to. And so, God, I can't bring any of that about in us. I don't have any power to do it, but you do. 
And so I ask by your spirit that you would cause those things to sink deeply into our hearts this morning. And so we need you for everything. We're so glad that you are enough for our need. And so we pray this morning uh, that we get to worship you in it as we study. So we pray. Amen. All right. Well, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 13, um, verses 1 through 17. Read this way. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. All right, now, as we study our passage this morning, the reality is, is I could preach like a whole series of sermons on this passage, and so suffice it to say, we are not going to suck the marrow out of every verse that's here. There's, there's a lot going on here, but what I do want to show you this morning, what I want to highlight for you is, is how Jesus' embodiment of a servant in this passage is not just an example for us that we should admire or imitate. It is that but it's much more than that. It's actually what we see in our passages is that John actually shows us how you embrace the identity that Jesus demonstrates. He doesn't just tell us that we should. He shows us how to do it. In other words, we don't just see an example that we're supposed to follow. We actually learn how to joyfully embrace the identity of a servant in the passage. And So before we get to that, how we, the how, we've got to look at the what. The what to be followed here. And so uh, that begins with looking at the way that Jesus embodies the identity of a servant in our passage this morning. And so I've got to do just a little bit of context work to set up that understanding. See, Jesus and the disciples are about to sit down for a meal. This is the context of this story, specifically the Last Supper, Jesus' final meal with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And everything's been prepared. Everything is ready at this meal except one really important thing. You see, the, the host of the meal hasn't provided someone to wash everyone's feet. And that's a problem for a few reasons. And some of you are already at the spot where you're like, feet are nasty. I, I don't need any more reasons that washing feet should happen, right? I'm on that team. They're disgusting. I don't want to be a part of any of it, right? And then imagine, to add to that, that people are 
walking literally everywhere they went. There's no cars. There's no, it's just people are walking and, and there's no sidewalks and there's no paved roads and there's no gravel trails. It's just dirt everywhere and sand. I hate sand. I spend a large quantity of my life avoiding places that have sand in them because it's like sand, it's like nature's glitter, right? It's just like you get it on you, six years later, you are still trying to get it off. Like you just cannot, unless you have a Jeep or something like that. I don't know how they do it, right, with Jeeps, but... And there's no socks, right? There's, there's, there's no closed-toed shoes. Everybody's wearing like the ancient version of Chacos, right? Everybody's got some sandals on. I don't know about you. When I was a kid, there was like this fad that kind of happened where everybody was wearing these like cool like leather kind of sandals. And, and uh, what I didn't realize at the time is that the expensive ones are actually made out of leather, but the cheap ones are made out of pleather, which instantly smell like death after you touch your foot with them, right? And so I spent like a whole summer just walking around smelling like death, right? right, to everyone, because my feet were nasty, but, and to top it all off, it's hot all the time, all the time, it's literally the Middle East, it's just hot all the time there, right, and so people's feet were nasty, and to top it all off, right, when, in that culture, when you ate a meal, you, it's not like you eat a meal, like my house, I have like a counter height table, right, my dog sits under the table, nobody even knows he's there, right, uh, and in that culture, you eat a meal, and, and, you eat in this kind of reclined position, right? The table's very low, and you eat kind of like leaned back a little. You're kind of like half sitting up and half leaning down, which means that your feet are kind of up in people's business, right? And, and so everyone, right, and everyone's just like there's feet everywhere as you're in the middle of eating dinner, right? And some of you are like, I'm already sick to my stomach, and we need to stop this conversation, and this needs to end, right? And so, so to remedy this obvious issue, what happened is that the host, whoever is hosting this gathering, right, they would provide, they would be responsible for washing everybody's feet, or more specifically, they'd be responsible for hiring somebody to do it, because it was a nasty job, right? Nobody wanted to do that job. It was the job that the person who was lowest on the totem pole would get, the servant with the least tenure, the least, the least status, the least standing, that'd be the one who'd be assigned to this kind of a role, because it was just, just gross, and yet what we see happening here in this passage is that Jesus himself takes on that role. The one who sits at the head of the table gets up from his seat of honor. He takes off his jacket. He wraps a towel around his waist. He pours water into a basin and begins to wash the feet of everyone else at the table and dry them with the towel that's wrapped around his waist. What you have to understand is that in the midst of that, everyone's jaws in that room must have been on the floor. You see, everyone knew that someone needed to do the job. And none of them considered for a second that they were the ones that should be doing it. And it would have been beyond imagination that the master of the table, the one who sits at the head, would be the one who would take on this job. And yet Jesus willingly takes on this role. You've got to imagine the disciples, if Jesus would have asked one of them to do it, they would have just laughed. Yeah, that's really funny, Jesus. I'm so glad that we had this great joke together. Like, who's going to really do it? Like, I'm, no, no. Oh, you're serious? I have cleaned nastier fish than the people's feet here, right? Like, this is, like, this is not going to work. Like, I don't, we got to find somebody to do this job because, like, this is not the job I'm supposed to be doing. 
that Jesus willingly takes on this role. You have to see it as well. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. Jesus is not like, all right, well, I gave everybody time to think, to realize that we needed somebody to do it. We're all sitting at the table. Everybody knows this needs to happen. I was hoping that somebody would figure out like, oh, this really needs to get done. I'll be the one that does it, right? But no, nobody could figure it out. Everyone has to be, no one's ready to do it. So I'm gonna have to do it myself. No, that's not what's going on. You see, verse two, he says, having loved his own who were in the world, says Jesus loved them till the end. Jesus is not begrudgingly taking on this lowly role of service. He's doing it in love for his friends. And there's this incredible picture of service and humility that in verse 15, he calls anyone who would be his disciples to imitate. He says, I have set an example for you that you should do what I have done. And Jesus in love, he gladly takes on this incredibly humble role of service as this example that we might follow in his footsteps. So there's this profound picture of service and humility, one that's not done out of to get something from others, one that's done out of love for them, one that's incredibly humble, taking on a wildly low position and a call to imitate that. And if I stop here, all you have is dead religiosity. You have an example that you are supposed to follow, but you have no motivations and no power to do it. It's just duty and obligation. And you might choose out of guilt to take on the role of a servant in a few areas of your life, knowing it's what you should be doing. Or you might choose to serve others in order to curry favor from people that you think are worthy of it or important enough that you want something from them in return. And you might take on the job of a servant in certain situations, but you will never choose to embrace the identity and the attitude of a servant if you just see Jesus as an example. And you will certainly never be able to choose to serve people, people like Peter, who Jesus knew would deny him three times that very night. Or Judas, who he knew would literally leave this meal to go and betray him for money. You see, and that brings us to the how. How do you actually choose not just to do begrudgingly the actions of a servant, but to embrace the very identity and attitude of one? How do you choose to do that? Well, I think John so graciously he shows us a few really important things about that in our passage. And I think it begins, what we see in the beginning of the passage, is that choosing to embrace the identity, the servant identity that Jesus demonstrates, it begins by knowing who you are begins by knowing who you are and being secure in the identity that you have with God. You see, the Bible is clear that we are not defined by the things that we do, but here's the reality. What you do and how you do it says a whole lot about who you think you are and about the security you have and the identity that you, have, that you think you have. You see, Jesus knew who he was. Verse 1 says, Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Verse 3, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God, that he was returning to God. Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he came from and where he was going. He knew who the Father said that he was at his baptism. The Father literally out loud said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. See, Jesus was aware of his sovereign authority, his heavenly origin, and his coming destiny. And it's in that confidence 
that he has the ability to choose the life of a lowly servant and to take on the role of a servant and wash the disciples' feet. See, Jesus knew who he was, and so he is free to take on the identity of a servant, to embrace and embody not just the actions but the attitudes of a servant. Because what he realizes is that it's not demeaning him. It's, it's not changing his true identity. It's not saying something different about who he is than what God has already said about him. You see, Jesus' thinking and actions here, his confidence in his identity, it stands in such sharp contrast with the self-seeking and insecure reality of the disciples. See, none of them are willing to even pick up the towel and to do this job themselves or to take it from Jesus when they see their master taking on this role. Instead, throughout the Gospels, what you see is that they're most concerned endlessly with arguing about who is the one of them who is the greatest, who should be the one who gets the position of most power and influence and authority in Jesus' kingdom. And they're endlessly arguing with one another about it and worried about it. They are insecure. You see, embracing the identity of a servant is only possible if you know who you already are. If you're secure in the identity that God gives you. Church, that's why I didn't start with this one. For the last seven weeks, we've been talking about who Jesus says that you are because of him. That you are his commissioned, image-bearing representative. You are his beloved child of the Father. You are a, his forgiven friend. And unless you see and rest in that reality, you will never be able to choose to embrace the identity he gives you as a servant as well. You see, if you're trying to always manufacture an identity for yourself instead of resting in the one that God gives you, there's only two ways that really respond out of that. One, you'll either reject the identity of a servant altogether because you think that it's beneath you, right? Just like the disciples did here. None of them even considered for a second that they should be the ones who would take on the role of a servant and wash each other's feet. None of them even take that role from Jesus. Only Peter, Peter's the only one who even protests that Jesus doesn't. You see, because they know it's beneath Jesus, but it surely must be beneath them. They're his 12 chosen disciples. They're at the top of the kingdom hierarchy, aren't they? Surely this role must be beneath them. You see, we live in a world that's just like that. Nobody wants to be last. You see, we live in a world that says second place is first loser. Leonard Bernstein, the famous orchestra director, he once, somebody once asked him, what's the hardest instrument to play? Without hesitation, he responded, second fiddle. It is easy to find people who will play first chair. It is very difficult to find anyone who will gladly play the second. You see, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kind of kingdom. He tells his disciples in Mark chapter 10, he calls them together. They're arguing about which one of them is the greatest, which one of them should get the spot at Jesus's right hand. And he calls them and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, that their high officials exercise authority over them. Verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
See, here's the deal. If you are secure in the identity Jesus gives you, then you will understand there is no task beneath you. There is no task beneath you because nothing is insignificant that you might do for his glory. And you'll know who you are. And so if you're trying to manufacture an identity for yourself, instead of resting in the one God gives you, you'll either reject the identity of a servant altogether, thinking it's beneath you, or two, your motives will always be messed up in serving. Your motives will always be messed up. You'll serve God and others in order to get something from them, whether that's praise or approval or status or honor or validation. You see, that's not actually service. That's just manipulation. You see, and when we live like that, we are not just, we are, we're not just serving with bad motives. We are missing our identity as servants altogether. We're missing it all together. You see, what happens is when we live like that, people become God. They take his spot as God, or God becomes just an, a means to an end of the thing you're really trying to get, and you are not a servant. See, in his letter to the Colossians, Paul exhorts the Christians. He says it this way to them, Obey your earthly masters in everything you do, not only when their eyes are on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Work whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. See, the reality, church, is that we, if we are not careful, we can fool ourselves into believing that the service that we do and the lives that we are engaged with, we can fool ourselves into believing that that's actually for God. When in reality, we're just serving others in order to curry favor with people. We're doing it to serve our own desire for acceptance or significance or for control or praise or prestige or honor. To be seen as humble, as insane as that sounds. You see, and it's only, it's only when you base your worth and your identity in who Jesus already says that you are that you're free to actually be a servant because you realize he's given you a status and a standing so insanely high, such, it's such a magnitude more than you could ever earn or merit for yourself and that it's not based on you, what you have done but on all that he has done for you and who he says you are, then you're free to take on any role of a certain. You're free to embrace the identity and the attitudes of a servant because you know that Jesus says you are his. That you're his beloved child, his forgiven friend, his called and commissioned image-bearing representative. You have a title higher than anyone you could ever earn. And so you are free to lay down what others think of you so you that you might make much of him. You see, so embodying, embracing the identity, the servant identity Jesus demonstrates, it begins by knowing who you are who Jesus says you are. But secondly, I think embodying and embracing the identity that Jesus demonstrates, it requires that you understand how Jesus has served you. It requires that you understand that. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place, and he asked them, do you understand? Do you understand what I have done? for you. Not just an esoteric example that I have set. Do you understand what I have done for you? 
You call me teacher, he says, and Lord, rightly so, for that's what I am. Verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash each other's. Jesus has the highest status at that table. He has the highest status at every table. He is the great king and creator of the universe who Colossians tells us didn't just make everything, he holds it together. He's God himself. And yet the one who has the highest seat, the greatest status, the most honor, makes himself not just low, but the lowest of all. And he does it for you. The highest of highs becomes the lowest of lows for you. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2. He says to them, he says, in your relationships with one another, have this mindset. It's yours because of Christ Jesus. He says in verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness, found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Peter, Jesus tells Peter that he doesn't understand, but one day he will. Here's the reality, he does. He does. And the rest of the disciples as well. You see, in the midst of this meal, none of them are willing to even consider that they should be the ones washing each other's feet. And yet what happens as you read the rest of the letters in the New Testament that the apostles write to the churches, the title they give themselves, the identity they embrace most often is the identity of a servant. And that is so telling because they all had better titles to use. They all had better titles. Paul could have referred to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles, the one who written half of the New Testament. Peter was an elder of the church and one of the founding apostles. He preached the gospel. Thousands of people got saved at sermons that he preached. John in the gospels is referred to as Jesus' beloved disciple. James and Jude, they were Jesus' brothers. They could have leaned into their identity as being a part of his family, having the inside track with him, but they don't. All of them. Their letters begin. Paul, Timothy, James, Jude, Peter, John. A servant of Jesus. See, what they did not understand, they now do. Because what they've seen is the good news of the gospel. You see, Jesus had proved to them who they were to him. He had proved that they were his beloved friends. And they had seen him, their great master, the Messiah, serve them humbly. And so they were free to embrace the identity and the attitude of a servant because their master, who was greater than them, had made himself beneath them so that they might have life and joy so they have the power in their identity in Christ to be servants, and they have the motivation, Christ's service towards them. But you have to see this. You can't miss this. The last thing 
is that the motivation Jesus gives them is not just responding to him. It's not just an external kind of thing where they're responding to what has happened. You see, what happens is it's in, he gives them an internal motivation as well. Verse 17, he says, now that you know these things, he says, you will be blessed if you do them. That word that's translated as blessed there, it's not about receiving rewards primarily. It's not about getting a prize. Instead, it's about, being, it's about having gladness and joy and happiness. Jesus says, the way that you actually find joy is if you live as a servant. You'll be blessed. You will have the thing you are looking for if that's the way you choose to live. Jesus in John 10, he comes to us, he says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. See, Jesus is not after dutiful worker bees. He wants your joy. He wants you to have life to the full. And what he's saying here is that the way you find life to the full is by embracing the identity of a servant that he demonstrates for you. And that the identity he serves you with. And so it's at the end of the road of embracing the identity of a servant is not just menial obligation and religious duty. It's a life of joy. It's the life you're after. It's the one we're all after. You see, we all live in a world where we're trying to climb the ladders. And Jesus tells us the way up is down. The way to life is to lay down your life. The way up the ladder is down. His kingdom is an upside down kingdom. And it's one that he doesn't just explain to us. It's one he demonstrates for us. And it's only when you see that he has embraced the identity of a servant for you that you'll be able to respond and to embrace the identity of a servant back to him and to others. You see, what we're doing every week when we celebrate communion is remembering that reality. We're reminding ourselves that the highest of highs became the lowest of lows for you and I. That he didn't just stop with washing the disciples' feet, but the great king and creator of the universe allowed himself to be seen as a criminal and killed as one. So that you and I might have life and joy as we live unto him because of him. And so taking communion doesn't change your status or your standing with God. It doesn't change how he views you. It's a chance for you to remember, to remind yourself that the highest of highs became the lowest of lows and that he calls you in a pursuit of joy and glory that you might do the same. I see, and so if you're here today, and you've trusted Jesus as your savior, if he's the one who tells you who you are, if you know that you are his forgiven friend and beloved child of the Father, not because of your actions, but through faith in what he has done, then the invitation during our time of worship is to go back and take communion, to do it as a remembrance of all that he has done for you so that you might be full of the confidence in knowing who, he, who you are to him and all that he has done for you, that you might be able to respond to who he is and all that he has done by giving yourself back and imitating his servant, the servant identity that he demonstrates in a pursuit of joy and life with him. If you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is. And if you want to surrender to him, if he really is a king that's worth serving, 
I just want you to know how welcome you are here. I'm so glad that you would join us in our time together this morning. You're welcome in this church. You are welcome in this community. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. What he's after is a heart that rests in who he says you are to him already. That by faith receives the identity he gives you and enjoy embraces the identity of a servant he calls you into. That only happens by faith. And so if that's where you are this morning, or if you've come to that spot this morning, then I want to encourage you, take communion. There's a table in the back on the left and on the right. You can dip the bread in the juice or take one of the packs back to your seat. But wherever you're at, I want to encourage you this morning, talk with God. Some of you are here this morning, and embracing the identity of a servant is the absolute last thing you want to be called to do right now. It feels beneath you. It feels like a diminishing role to you. And I want to encourage you to see that Jesus has served you in a lower way. That the highest of highs became the lowest of lows for you. And so there is, no, there is nothing beneath us that we might give and live for his honor and glory. But others of you are here this morning and you are trying desperately to live the life of a servant, but you are doing it for the wrong reasons. You embrace the, the attitude or, or the, the role of a servant, but you're doing it to get something from God. You're trying to get earn something from him that you cannot earn from him. Or you're trying to use your service to get something from people and whatever they can give you will never be enough. And I want to encourage you wherever you are to rest in the identity Jesus offers you through faith in him. So that in joy, you might give yourself to serve him and to serve others as an honored servant of the great king. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminder it is to us, not just that we are called to be servants, but that you, the great king and creator, have served us. Jesus, so often we are motivated by dead religiosity just to follow an example because we think we're supposed to. Jesus, would you show us the, would you help us to understand in our hearts your service of us? Help us to see who you say that we are and who your service of us proves that we are to you. And might you help us to see joy at the end of choosing a life of service unto you and others. Help us not to embrace merely the actions of a servant, but the very identity and attitudes, knowing you have done it for us, and it leads to life and joy. We pray. Amen.